Well, this morning, we are going to continue in the book of Acts, and we're going to be in Acts 7. And if you are uh, unfamiliar with Acts, or you've been not paying attention for the past six sermons, then uh, what we have here in the book of Acts today is really a, a monumental time in the history of the church. It's a monumental time in the history of the church. Acts very much describes that. And before we just jump into the chapter, it's, it's a whole lot. It's 60 verses. By no means am I going to read all of that. It would take a, a, a large part of our time, so we're going to kind of skip through it. But before we do that, I would like to just kind of recap for us some things about Acts. Uh, as we've seen, Acts is very much the answer to what happened in the church. Uh, we, we have the Gospels, which all picture Jesus as coming. He comes, God in human flesh, as a baby, grows into a man, suffers, dies on the cross for sinners, rises from the dead, and ascends into heaven. And then if we were to just skip forward over Acts entirely, what we would see is a group of letters called the Epistles, letters to Christians that have somehow been affected by Jesus in the Gospels and the disciples, and now there are churches all over the world. And Acts, for us, answers the question, how did that happen? What happened? Furthermore, if you were to go forward about 100 years in history, then you would see that the official religion of the Roman Empire is now Christianity, which in just about 10 years or 20 years would be severe persecution against the church. Acts answers for us the question of what happened in the early church. How did the gospel, we go from gospels and Jesus to all of a sudden now churches all over the known world, mainly in Palestine, but certainly all over Asia, in the Roman Empire, and even in Rome herself, right underneath the emperor's nose. How did that happen? Acts answers the question for us. And as we see, we can actually even ask that question, what happened in terms of the book of Acts? So if you want to you think about it in terms of asking a big question, what happened in terms of Christianity, then you can ask a smaller question even within Acts and say, what happened in Acts? Acts begins with Jesus right before he ascends, telling his disciples that they are to go into all the world and spread this gospel. But before they do that, they're supposed to go to Jerusalem and pray and wait to receive power. The Holy Spirit comes on them in Acts chapter 2. And at that point, if you were to skip, skip the majority of the book, by the time you get to the end, there's all sorts of things going on. There are churches, certainly, that are being established throughout the world, but there's this man named Paul, who you don't see any time up to this point. And so, so we can hone in a little bit further and say what happened in Acts. Acts chapter 7 answers the question. As we briefly talked about last week, Acts 6 introduced a man called Stephen, and Stephen is a man of great power in the Holy Spirit and wisdom, as we saw. And he has men rise up against him to accuse him falsely of blasphemy against God, against Moses, and against the temple. And as those things happen, he is arrested and shoved into the court of the religious leaders with a high priest right in front of him. 
And that's where we ended last week. And as that happens, just for a spoiler alert for you, okay, Stephen dies. And he doesn't just die, he's brutally murdered. And he becomes the very first martyr of the church. The very first martyr of the church. And Acts chapter 7 tells us this. And it becomes the catalyst, Stephen's death, for all sorts of persecution in Jerusalem and the gospel to go out into all the world eventually. Stephen is a monumental figure in Acts and in the Bible on the whole. And to keep with the imagery from last week, we're talking about the fire of God's community. It starts really small, literally tongues of flames in, in Acts chapter 2, and then it grows and it's bigger and bigger. Uh, to keep that imagery, by this point, the religious leaders realize this thing is getting out of control. We have to do something about this. And so they start to try to stamp it out. And it happens with Stephen. And as they stamp it out, at least they think they do, what happens is embers fly from the fire. And it goes all over the world. And now all of a sudden, it's not just a small fire that's getting overwhelming, but it's actually a forest fire that takes over the world by storm. And that is very much the story of Acts chapter 7. And as, if we can focus a little, little bit further still this morning, uh, we're going to take a little bit different approach and just ask one, one question. That's all we're going to do this morning. Ask one question, and that is about Stephen. And the question is this, what enabled Stephen to endure martyrdom? What enabled Stephen to endure martyrdom? And there's a number of answers that we could get. Um, and certainly all of this is led by and influenced through the Holy Spirit. But there are just three things that we're going to focus on this morning. And the first is that Stephen has a certain understanding of the scripture's message. Second, that Stephen has a certain conviction of man's nature. And third, that Stephen has a belief in not one, but two courts. Not one, but two courts. These are the sorts of things that enabled Stephen to endure his persecution and his death. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And these are certainly things for us that we need to pay attention to. We need to pay attention to, I know I do, especially as the holidays come up, if it's already started for you, you have new uh, family members or old family members that you're going to see, and you will have in those conversations an opportunity to talk about what God's teaching you, about your relationship with Christ. And inevitably, it seems, in every family, there's tension, which is just what Jesus has said in the Gospels, that he came to drive a sword between, between his brother and his father, between, his, uh, between a daughter and her mother, that Jesus does do some sort of dividing in our family units. And so at this time, as we begin the holiday season, keep this in mind. How do you actually answer your, your friends and your relatives and speak boldly for Christ? We can learn that from Stephen and much, much more. So let's begin. We will, uh, like I said, there's so much. We'll just kind of be jumping around, and I've, I've given you the text that we'll mainly be looking at on the screen. So we can do that together. And we'll start in Acts chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. So as Stephen begins, the, answer, the question to him by the high priest, by the high priest is, Is this true? 
are you a blasphemer? Are you, are you speaking against God, Moses, and the temple? And his answer is, I'm not going to tell you. His answer is, I'll give you a history lesson. And so for 50 verses, Stephen just begins to recite the history of Israel. Now, this is, uh, this is incredible that the man could do this, led by the Holy Spirit, certainly, but on the fly in front of the people who know the scriptures the best. Uh, and that also means that if he gives a wrong answer, he's condemned immediately. So he has to say exactly what the scripture says, and he does it for 50 verses. Like I said, we won't read all of it, but we'll just start reading. Brother, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, fun word, before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. There's more to be said of this, but initially what we see from Stephen is he says, I'm orthodox. I'm as orthodox as you can get in terms of God. I believe that God revealed himself in a special way to no one else, to no other people group, but to the man Abraham. And this is where the Jewish story picks up, that although God created all things, he reveals himself to one man in space and time. And this begins the Jewish history, the Jewish line. And that's certainly what they're wanting to hear. Do you believe in our traditions? Do you believe in our history? And Stephen, every time, with every accusation, we won't get to everyone, but he will say what they want to hear and then say it just a little bit differently because he knows that there's a certain message to all this. And so he affirms, yes, the glory of God appeared. And not only that to Abraham, but to Isaac and Jacob and to the patriarchs. There's, there's a belief in Judaism that it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the 12 sons of Jacob, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. That was probably 19 years old before I figured out that Jacob has a second name, which is Israel. And that's what's going on. So the 12 tribes of Israel are Jacob's sons. And he says, I affirm it. I believe in all that. In fact, let me tell you about it. And so he tells them about it, but then he'll move to say, even though he affirms these things, that he will actually say, there's a pattern going on here. And it's a pattern that all these learned men missed. And so he begins in Acts 7. He'll talk about Abraham. He'll talk about Joseph. He'll talk about Moses and some other people. And in verse 9, we pick up on Joseph. And here's the pattern as it starts to emerge throughout the Old Testament. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, who's one of the 12 sons, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. He rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So here's the first part. Stephen says there's a pattern here. And the pattern is first that God's man, his leader, his savior of the people, is rejected. He's rejected by his brothers. But more than that, he says later on, after he goes to Egypt, then you can pick up in verse 12. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, which Joseph is now ruling, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And what Stephen begins to tell us is that there's this 
this thing you start to see, even in Genesis, going back to the first book of the Bible, where there is a pattern of God's leader being rejected the first time and then accepted inevitably the second time. And not only Joseph, Joseph is just the tip of the iceberg. One of the biggest figures here for which Stephen is on trial for is Moses. So Stephen, seeing this pattern, moves from Joseph to Moses. He's building his case. When 40 years old, in verse 23, Moses is 40 years old now, grew up in Pharaoh's household. It came into his heart to visit his brothers. You see the similarities? Joseph's brothers, Moses' brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Stephen says they didn't get it. Even then, God's people didn't understand. He's providing someone to rescue them, to save them, to help them right then, and they say, we don't want you. Verse 27, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled. He's terrified. So Stephen says, with Joseph and with Moses, there's something going on of God's, God's preordained leader being rejected. And then in verse 35, it says that this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. The pattern here is that God's leader and savior for his people is always rejected first, then accepted second. And that's just a little bit. Joseph is a big one. Moses is bigger still. But there's, there's more examples that we won't get into that Stephen says. It's not only them. It's Joshua right after Moses. And it's not only Joshua, it's David. It's not only King David. It, there's all sorts of people through Israel's history. This is the normal rhythm. This is the normal pattern of what God does. God says, I'm going to send you a redeemer. I'm going to send you a savior. And you reject him until you get to such a desperate position that you say, okay, now I'll, now I'll ask for help. And I think it's pretty similar with us, if we're honest, a lot of times. Um, maybe, maybe it's just driving around if you're a, a man and you need directions. Thankfully, we have smartphones these days, so we don't have to ask anybody out loud. But uh, it's the same sort of thing. You don't ask for help until you desperately need it. This is the same attitude with God's people. First rejected, then accepted. And why is Stephen doing this? It's a pattern for sure, but it's a pattern to indicate something. And the, what it indicates is this, that Stephen knows that the scriptures have a particular message. They're saying one thing. The key things that he understands about God and Moses and the temple, they all come together and they're not disconnected for him. They're very connected. And he says they all point to not something, but someone. And he explains this by using Moses' own words. 
In Acts 7.37, just a little later on, talking about Moses, he'll say that this Moses, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses knew. Moses knew this pattern. He knew that one day, even though he was rejected and accepted, that there was going to be another man to come. In fact, another prophet to come. And so later, a little later, Stephen will say in verse 52 of the religious leaders, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Of course, what Stephen is doing is he's talking about Jesus. This is also what Jesus said. It should be familiar to some of you. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, you being the religious leaders. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's a very probably familiar verse for you that Jesus is saying, all of the scriptures speak of me. Whether it's Joseph or Moses or David, or Joshua, or Solomon, all me. And the impact of that can be lost on this, but listen to what Jesus keeps saying here. In verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who will accuse you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, you will not believe my words. Jesus clearly understood Everything in the scriptures points to him. Stephen understood the Bible's main point is Jesus Christ. Everything exists for him. So Stephen affirms to the religious leaders, I am orthodox, but the Bible's message is different than you think. It's different than you think. It's not about any one person other than Jesus. It's not about a temple. It's not about a history of people. It is about one man. And so I think a great question for us this morning is, do you read the Bible this way? When you get into it, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, whether it's history, literature, whether it's poetry, whether it's end times literature, whatever it is, do you read it and can you see Jesus in the Bible? Can you see him in the garden walking with Adam and Eve? Can you see him as he judges his people for their rebellion, can you see him saving them at the Red Sea? Jesus is everywhere in the scriptures, and this is a vision that permeated Stephen's mind. Led by the Spirit, he saw they're missing the point. The point is the Christ. And so do we read the Bible this way? Do we think about the Bible this way? If you don't, you are missing the point. When we read the Bible and when we come here, it's not just so that we can feel better about ourselves. It's not so that we can see things, moral platitudes that we look at and we say, well, that one's kind of impossible, but I can at least be kind to my neighbor. So I'll do that one and I'll feel good about myself. No, the point is to see that Jesus is the neighbor that you rejected and he still loves you. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. This is the permeating view, vision, the permeating view of Stephen, and it enabled him to endure severe persecution and even death. Why? Because he knew 
The scriptures were not about him and life itself was not about him. What we learned from Stephen is that he was in the, he was able to endure the martyrdom because of this understanding. But more than that, Stephen also has a certain view of man's nature. So we're going to skip forward the 50 verses and now land on verse 51. And it starts this way. Stephen brings a stinging indictment against them. This is one of the hardest, harshest words in the New Testament. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and to kill those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered? You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen, as he turns in his argument from giving a history of Israel to saying, you are just like your forefathers, he will give three different images to point out how they don't listen to God. And just to go over them very quickly, the first is stiff-necked, stiff-necked people. And this brings up Exodus 32 and 33, where God brings his people to the mountain. God has Moses come up to the mountain to receive the revelation about who he is and the law and the testimonies. And as they're doing that, the people are down in the valley worshiping a golden calf that they made, which is spiritual adultery. As that's happening, and after it happens, God says, you will go into the land, flowing with milk and honey, in Exodus 33. But he said, but I won't go with you, because if I go with you, I'll consume you, for you are a stiff-necked people. And this is a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament, especially in Exodus and especially in Deuteronomy. And I think about it this way. Uh, I, I love walking with my sons and uh, just going for walks down the street. And one of my favorite things to do, I, I'm sure my, my grandfather did to my dad and certainly my dad did to me, is as we're walking, walking, I'll just put my hand on my son's back or on their neck. And uh, it, it's not like I'm trying to steer him necessarily. But as I do that, and we're walking. I said, no, we're not running right now. We're just walking and we'll, we'll go over some Bible verses and different things, talk about life. And as we're doing that, I can feel immediately when he starts to tense up and he wants to go this way or go that way. And he wants to go do something else. And I can feel it in his neck because my hand's on his neck. And inevitably, though there will be something he wants to do. And then I can feel him just tense up so much that he wants to just break away. It's the same sort of thing happening here with God's people. He says, you're stiff-necked. You don't want to go my way. You want to go your own way. And not only that, he says that they're uncircumcised. Now, I won't get into a technical definition for you about circumcision this morning, uh, but I think it's suffice to say that circumcision uncovers the most sensitive part of a man's anatomy. And the part is, the, the point is to say that this is to signify that God's people are supposed to be the most sensitive people to his commands. The point is that he is able to feel. That's the point. And this is how God routinely speaks of man's heart. Not that you are circumcised, but you're uncircumcised. You can't feel what I want you to do. You don't feel my commands. 
And in Jeremiah, he'll talk about it this way to say that all of the nations, all of the uncircumcised nations, that when I speak to them, they don't hear me. You're like them. Even though you're circumcised in your flesh, you don't feel what I desire for you. You're stiff-necked and uncircumcised. And not only that, but he'll also say that they resist the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63 would talk about it this way, that in all of their affliction, he was afflicted, talking about God and Israel. And the angel of his presence saved them. And in his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all of the days of old, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. The point that Stephen's saying to these people is that you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised, and you resist the Holy Spirit despite God's loving care for you every day and his special care for you and saving you from so many nations. Though God loved them and cared for them, his people resisted him and grieved him like a spouse who has committed adultery again and again and again. What does the stiff-necked behavior show? What does the uncircumcision show? What does the resisting the Holy Spirit show? It all points to one thing, one truth, and that is that no one seeks God, not even God's people. The Apostle Paul knew this, and he weaves a number of Old Testament scriptures in the Psalms and Isaiah and other places together in Romans 3 to say this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. You see, Stephen had a solid conviction that even God's own people, whom he had especially revealed himself to, refused to love him and follow him, because that was their nature. Stephen has a view of man's nature. And whether it is Israel, the only people that God revealed himself to, or it is the rest of the world, the point is no one seeks God. No one loves him. This is how, this is how Stephen viewed the religious leaders. It's how he views all of mankind, that the scriptures are speaking one message, Jesus the Christ, and everyone who hears that says, not for me, not for me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And there's another thing we see here about Stephen. Not only does he have this certain view of the scriptures, that everything is about Jesus, and about humans' nature, that we, we don't want God, we rebel against God. We don't seek him. But he also has a certain belief about courts. Now, what do I mean by courts? Well, he's certainly standing in a court. That's one and this is how they respond to his words. Now, when they heard these things in verse 54, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. How often have you been angry enough to grind your teeth? You know what it feels like. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is one of the most remarkable scenes in the New Testament for sure, but even in the Bible on the whole. What Stephen sees standing here with these men who are spitting angry at him are the heavens part and he receives 
direct, special revelation from God about who he is. Now, this is a really important point in in the narrative here. It's important because how did Stephen begin this message? The glory of God appeared to Abraham. And then he'll show that it appeared to Moses and Joseph and David and all these other people. And now Stephen here says, I see the glory of God. That Stephen's speech begins and it ends with the glory of God. These people are so upset with him because he's supposedly blaspheming, but at the same time, there's nobody who's more devout, more pious, more, more loving of God in that room than Stephen. Stephen is on par at that moment with Abraham, with Moses, with Joseph, with David, with everyone in the past who has seen God face to face. And they hate him for it. Not only that, but they see, as, as Stephen declares, they hear that Stephen sees someone who's not just God, but the Son of Man. With the glory of God, Stephen also sees the Son of Man. This is the only place in the New Testament after the Gospels where this phrase is used. Why? Stephen is led by the Spirit and quoting Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days. And in that scene, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, receives a vision of the end times. And it looks like this. He sees the Ancient of Days seated in the heavens on a giant throne, ruling everything. And then there's somebody in this phrase, Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite term to refer to himself in the Gospels. The Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven. And in verse 14, Daniel 7 says this, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Stephen has a vision standing in this court of the judge, of the ruler of the earth, of the galaxies, and certainly everybody there. And as he sees that, he worships. And he knows, regardless of what happens, Jesus is the ultimate judge. And so Stephen, we see, has a certain, not only understanding of the scriptures and conviction of man's nature, but he has a belief and not one but two courts. You see, Jesus is standing probably to welcome Stephen in some sense. It's the only time that Jesus is seen as standing in the heavens. But more importantly, Jesus is standing as judge. He's standing in judgment. As would typically happen in those days, when a pronouncement is given in judgment by a ruler or an authority, the authority would stand up to pronounce judgment. And Jesus here is standing as he sees Stephen, as he sees the council, And the message here is this. The irony here is this, that the council, although they are standing in judgment on Stephen for supposedly blaspheming, God and Jesus stands in judgment over them for condemning his servant, his witness. And Stephen knew this, and this is something that will take you right through the worst times of your life. Yes, there are earthly courts, There are earthly meetings. There are earthly powers. 
But at the end of the day, there is a heavenly court above every human court. There is a power seated on high where Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and it is only his judgment that will endure. It is only his judgment that will remain. And whatever judgment that we exercise or is exercised on earth has to line up with that ultimate judgment. And this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. In Luke 22, before this happened, just recently, Jesus is led to this same council, speaking with the same high priest, answering a similar question. Is this true? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus' answer is this. In Luke twenty-two sixty-seven. that if you are the Christ, tell us, he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. Stephen sees what they could not see with spiritual sight that Jesus is the Son of Man in judgment over all of them. There is a lot that this means for us. Whenever you experience judgment wrongly, falsely accused, you can take confidence that God knows. He knows everything. He sees everything. He sees tonight what you say to your kids as they're running down the halls, painting the walls with markers. He sees it. Tomorrow morning when you get up to go to work and you're rushed, and you're having difficulty just getting food for the day, and then the frustration of the day starts to begin, he sees your heart's reaction. The way that you talk to your spouse, he sees it. And it is all piling up evidence in God's court, just like it was here for these religious leaders. This is all an earthly council, but the heavenly council is just taking in all of the evidence that's happening. And it's the same for us, that we all, we all stand under the court of God. Every single one of us. This means that we have to be extraordinarily careful when we exercise judgment, whether that's with your kids, whether that's with your friends, whether that's in the church. It is incredibly important that our judgment lines up with God's judgment. Because if it does not, it will not stand. It will not stand. So how do they respond to this revelation? Verse 57, And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when, they, when he had said this, he fell asleep. It is uncanny how Stephen died like Jesus died. It's uncanny. As they rushed to grab Stephen, arrest him, pull him outside, throw him on the ground outside of the city, and start throwing rocks as large as a basketball at him, Stephen prays. 
And his prayers are so similar to Jesus. First, Stephen prays that his request is this, that his spirit would be received to God. He also cries aloud, just like Jesus cried aloud. And he also requests that the sin of his murder would not be held against his persecutors. Absolutely incredible. How in the world could Stephen do that? Have you ever been wrongly condemned or persecuted? How in the world can you endure something like that and not say, God, get them. Pour out the judgment on them. We see that Stephen has already said this in one degree in terms of his indictment against them, that he knows they're stiff-necked. He knows they're uncircumcised and they're hardened ears and they resist the Holy Spirit. But Stephen does not, at his last breath, curse them. He blesses them. This is one reason the early church was unexplainable in terms of its movement in the world. Christians dying would not curse their persecutors, they would bless them. And this is what Stephen does. And Stephen could do this for one reason and only one reason. You see, Stephen knew that he stood in God's court condemned. He knew that he, in and of his own work, was just like they were. But there's a huge difference to Stephen's prayer and Jesus' prayer. Stephen does not cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because Jesus did. Stephen here is able to say, God, don't, don't pay them what they owe because he knows that Jesus paid his cost. Stephen can stand in God's court because he's already been declared innocent. His prayer was not, God receive my spirit, but Jesus receive my spirit. Stephen has a a new and a better way to God rather than the temple, rather than a building, a person, Jesus. The only reason why Stephen's prayer was accepted is because Jesus' prayer was rejected. And it's the same for us. It's the same for you this morning that Jesus is ready to accept you now in love and not in judgment if you believe in his death and his resurrection for your sins. That Jesus died on the cross for sinners and he rose again to give them new life. And if you don't accept this, the word of Stephen remains. There is judgment sitting over your head for all that you have done wrong and all that you will do. And unless it is paid for by Jesus, you will pay for it. This is the gospel message. This is the the two-court system that Stephen saw, and it enabled him to endure martyrdom. His understanding of all the scriptures pointing to Jesus, his conviction that no one seeks God, and his belief that God's judgment on sinners will either be paid in Jesus or on themselves. This is what enables Stephen to endure martyrdom. And if, if the... If you can't see that, if it's not powerful to you, then sometimes, if you're like me, you just need something else to help you see it. You need something else to bring it in color for you. And so I'd like to share with you a, a quick story of someone who experienced something very similar to this. It's a story of a man named Sergei. 
Sergei Kordorkov records in his autobiography, The Persecutor, the story of how he came to believe in Christ. Kordorkov was a missionary, was a uh, commissioned Russian secret police agent, and he led teams to break up cat prayer gatherings. That's his main job. And in doing so, he persecuted believers with extraordinary brutality. But the afflictions of one believer changed his life. And here's the story that he recounts. On a raid, I saw Victor, a fellow guard, reach and grab for a young girl, Natasha, who was trying to escape to another room. She was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer, he thought to himself. Victor threw her at the wall and laughed, saying, I'll bet the idea of God went flying out of her head. On later raids, Sergei was shocked to see Natasha again. I quickly surveyed the room and saw a sight I couldn't believe. There she was, the same girl. It couldn't be, but it was. Only three nights before, she had been at the other meeting and been viciously thrown across the room. Angered, I beat her. To Sergei's shock, he later encountered her at another prayer meeting. But this time, something was different. There she was again, Natasha. Several of the guys saw her too. Alex moved toward Natasha, hatred filling his face, his club raised above his head. Then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Victor jumped between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on. Get out of my way, Alex shouted angrily. Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club meaninglessly. Alex, I tell you, don't touch her. No one touches her. I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Victor said, she has something we don't have. Nobody touches her. Nobody. And for... One of the first times in my life, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelievable suffering. Here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I wanted to run after her and ask, what is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. This heroic Christian girl who had suffered so much at our hands somehow touched and troubled me very much. And the Lord later opened Sergei's heart to the gracious good news of Jesus. And as he later reflected on Natasha, whom he never saw again, he wrote this. And finally to Natasha, whom I beat terribly and who was willing to be beaten a third time for her faith. I wanted to say, Natasha, largely because of you, my life is now changed, and I'm a believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me. I hope you can also. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I will never forget you. You see, what does Sergei see? Sergei saw the same sort of life given freely, not in cursing, but in blessing to him. And as he saw that, he and some of his fellow guardsmen knew we're dealing with something otherworldly here. People don't act this way. They don't bless when they're, they're beaten. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us. That Jesus, 
rather than cursing and in judgment, condemning all the world, gave up his own life. And his prayer was that the father would not hold this sin against them. And by his life and his death and his resurrection, it is true for those who believe in him. If you haven't believed in Christ, see him this way. See him for you. See him blessing and not in judgment. It's only through him that we can know God. Let's pray.